0: This episode contains discussions of sexual violence, mentions of the death penalty, traumatic events, depression, and suicide. I hope you will listen when you are ready and able.
1: But up until that point, you know, that's what I believed, and I really, truly believed it, even to the point where I was an advocate of the death penalty, because I thought the system doesn't make mistakes. I mean, we get these things right. Um, So I had no reason to question what was happening on systemic level. I I believed it and I trusted it. I think that's the other word, right? I trusted it. Um.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Ordinary Warrior podcast where we celebrate the extraordinary journeys of ordinary people who endeavor to make this a more just world for all, while finding ways to safeguard their own peace. I'm your host, Halona Shaw, and I'm thrilled to bring to you stories of courage and determination that will inspire you to recognize your inner warrior. My guest today is a woman who has turned her personal tragedy into a powerful message of reconciliation and healing. Her story is a testament to the human spirit's ability to find healing in even the most challenging circumstances. Listener, I'm honored to introduce Jennifer Thompson. Jennifer's journey is not only about overcoming adversity, but about using that adversity to fuel a mission to bring about change. So open your hearts and minds as we dive deep into a conversation with Jennifer Thompson about her extraordinary journey toward healing justice. Jennifer Welcome to the Ordinary Warrior Podcast. It's so nice to see your face. Yeah. And um, I'm sure this is like a real Southern thing to say, but like you kind of just live across the road, which you don't, it's not across the road, but you, it's like you live across the street and we don't get to see each other all that often. I wanted to share that the very first time we met, I think we were at a wedding of a mutual um, friend and I knew who you were, but we had not met face to face. We have a friend in common. And um when when you were intro when we introduced ourselves to each other, your name was familiar. You you were familiar to me, but we I didn't know who you were. And so I was trying to place it and I said something like, Well, what do you you know, maybe we were talking about what do you do for a living? And you said, uh, I think you paused and you said, I I'm a violent crime survivor and it was such a sort of gentle hint to me that if I knew what you were talking about, we, that was good, but it was, it felt protective and I kind of appreciated that for both of us. Um, but then I knew who you were, um, because I have your book, uh, picking cotton. And, um, so I wanted to start with that, 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 I wanted to start with that because there are so, so many people who are violent crime survivors, and most people keep it private. It's got a lot that goes with it. There's shame and there's embarrassment. So I wanted to start there because you live with it in a public way. And that's probably not how you expected your life to turn out. Um, So I wanted to start there and just talk about or ask you about how did you envision your life and how, how has, how have all of these experiences shaped it? That's a huge question, but if you can start with, I'm not asking for detail and I want to be gentle about it because um, for you and for listeners, you were the victim of a violent crime. Can you start there and just talk about how that changed the trajectory of your life?
1: Sure. I mean, so it changed the trajectory of my life in multiple ways and multiple directions, to be perfectly honest with you. And I think, you know, part of the thing that I want to talk about um, slightly is this idea of being a woman in America and the knowledge yes. and that deep understanding I think by the time a girl becomes a young woman and we go into puberty we start I think reconciling the fact that our bodies now um, don't belong to us that at any moment something a man can take my power away can um, can kind of invade my boundaries, which is my skin and take something without my consent. Right. We, we kind of grow into that. We understand it. Um, the world defines it almost in um, like PG ways. It's, yeah. you know, it's fodder for a lot of jokes and mm-hmm. misunderstandings. And so I think when this crime happened to me, It's not that I never expected myself to be a victim of sexual violence, which sounds terrible, Yeah. but I think as a female, it's not, will I ever be sexually assaulted? It's when and where and by whom will I be sexually assaulted? For me, up until this particular story begins, which is in 1984, I had had those moments before. They were my friend's dad or the captain of the football team or there was somebody that kind of felt that they could intrude on my personal space, my skin, my body. What happened in 1984 was different in the sense that it was a stranger rape, that I had gone to bed that night alone and woke up at 3 a.m. with a knife to my throat and a man on my body telling me to shut up or he was going to kill me. And that felt different. Um, It's not different. It felt different because this was somebody I didn't know. And I didn't understand, like, what was happening and how am I going to get out of this and will I die? And that's that kind of realization you come to in those moments. And the other thing that happened for me was I made a different decision that night in the sense that I wanted to stay very present to what was happening because if i survived i wanted to see this person put in prison
0: right
1: and now up until this point of my life i would often talk about the other events that happened i would go to my mother and say this man did this to me and it was usually brushed off don't go to that right person's house or don't be alone with them right and so this felt um that I wanted this person to be held accountable because I knew that I had not been his first victim and I knew that he would rape again. And so I was in that space of A, I want to survive, but B, I want justice for me and for other women. Um, Now I was born in the South and I'm a white female. And when you're born in the South as a white female, justice looks very different Sure. Than, than people who were born in brown and black skin. Right. And for me growing up in the South, justice looked like you're the victim, this person's the bad person, they go to prison and, and the criminal justice system, you know, kind of comes to your rescue and gives sure. you what you need, right? Right. And so that night and the days that followed after the rape and um, you know, the escaping, the running, the the rape kit, the hospital experiences, the diminishing and degrading way those are done, being taken to the police station, given a description, composite sketch goes out, and three days later, there is a suspect. I was still in that white female perspective of, wow, this is the way it works, right? Right. Right. I'm raped. I'm almost murdered. Um, The criminal justice system is going to bring this person to justice. They're going to die in prison, and I'm going to somehow, you know, as as the system likes to give to you, you know, say to you, get closure, which is such a crock.
0: That's hilarious.
1: Yeah, I just wish we would eradicate that word from our criminal justice system language because there's no closure when you're a victim of violence or your family's a victim of violence. Right. Um, But up until that point, you know, that's what I believed. And I really truly believed it, even to the point where I was an advocate of the death penalty because I thought the system doesn't make mistakes. I mean, we get these things right. Um, so I had no reason to question what was happening on systemic level. I I believed it and I trusted it. I think that's the other word, right? I trusted it. Um, Up until that point, I was supposed to get married to the right guy. I was supposed to graduate with honors. I was supposed to go and get a master's degree and be a physical therapist and and have 2.3 children. And, you know, all the things that the the stories tell us come true for you. Um, And, of course, that didn't happen because sexual assault, sexual violence, violence against our body destroys us in ways that, we really don't have words for. I I often kind of compare it to a tornado that blows through your, your life and everything gets shattered and blown up into tiny little pieces. And you're trying to figure out, is there anything out there in the landscape that even remotely reminds you of your former life before this happened? Um, And so that recovery process, that healing process is non-existent it's just non-existent particularly well, what in is the closure
0: system. when you described a tornado what's the closure piece of that yeah it doesn't it doesn't there is no such thing to put right. the pieces back together mm-hmm.
1: no because because you're no. broken and you're you've lost things and those things that got broken and got lost um cannot go back to where they used to be, right? It's like you right. smash in a dish. It's like, yeah, you can glue it and right. and you can, you can find some of the pieces, but there's always going to be holes and chips and things that just never made their way back. And so mm-hmm. I think what you're left with is um, oftentimes deep isolation and trying to figure out the what next on your own. Um, people, as you said at the beginning, people don't want to talk about this.
0: Yeah, and and you're you're absolutely right about that. Um people don't want to talk about it and that and that's interesting what you described about the isolation because when you consider I I if I say statistics, I'll get them wrong, but when you consider um, you know, I'm sitting in a room with a group of my friends and you know, three out of four of the women in the room have have had, it's not, st- that's not a statistic. I mean, it is a statistic, but three out of four of the women in that room had been sexually assaulted. And one of my friends turned to me and said, we moved on and we were talking about something else. And the friend turned to me and said, are we really not going to talk about the fact that three of us in this room just said that we've all been sexually assaulted? And we did, like what you said in the beginning, we, we move on from it because it's a function of being female in this world really certainly in this country Um, and so what you just described is a major trauma that many people go through and end up in that position of isolation what what was the next thing because yours was a trauma on top of a trauma on top of a trauma so what happened with the what what happened with law enforcement
1: I mean you know I think I'm going to give them a lot of credit. I think that they did the best they could with the time that we were experiencing this. We're talking about the 80s. And, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, people believed and I think still believe that, you know, our memories work like video cameras and we can just push a button in our brain and play it back. And it's true and real and and whole and not distorted, you know, yeah. and that's not the way it worked. And so for me, um, it was playing a part in a process that was flawed, unbeknownst to me. I had no idea that the process was inherently flawed, that collecting trauma memory is incredibly difficult. And, and particularly when things are then put into your memory that weren't there to begin with. So, and that happens a lot. In these investigations, you know, and, and most of it, I I want to say, just because I want to believe this to be true, I think most of it is innocuous, right? Like, like, if you say he had brown hair, and the officer might have a suspect in mind and say, was it brown hair, or could it have been blonde because it was three o'clock in the morning, and could it have been more on the blondish side, and then all of a sudden your memory starts getting distorted, and you're placing things that are in your memory that weren't there to begin with, and that's what happened to me. Um, You know, by the time the suspect was kind of brought in, and then the photographic lineup takes place that then um, precedes the physical lineup, my memory begins to become contaminated, becomes distorted, and as I try to explain to people, once you contaminate, a memory, you can't uncontaminate it. Sure. It's just now contaminated. Right. Often we don't know that we're, we're telling stories with pieces and bits in there that actually weren't my pieces and bits. They were somebody else's pieces and bits. Right. Right. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> and so the suspect in my case, Ronald Cotton was in held over for trial um, in January of 1985. There had been two rapes at night Within an hour of each other, within a mile of each other, um, by the same perpetrator. But the second victim was, um, and they, it, she was not capable of making an ID. So we just tried my rape ca- case, and so Rana would be found guilty and sentenced to life in fifty-four years in prison. And again, you know, from my understanding, from my um, childhood, and from my privilege, my my feelings were great. This is the way it's supposed to work. You know, they pat you on the head and they give you the thumbs up and they tell you, now you get to move on with your life and put things back together and move forward. (laughs) Yeah. Closure. Put this behind you. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's all, yeah, it's all great. Yeah. Um, And then he's going to die. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the problem with both of those is that, you know, mistakes are made in the criminal justice system. We know that. But this idea of moving on and moving forward, you don't. You don't. You move, you move. Oftentimes you move around it because it's this big old ugly mess and that looks really complicated and it usually involves like lots of drugs and alcohol and bad decisions. Yeah. Or you move through it and you're mm-hmm. stuck in this like pile of garbage and there's nobody around you that says, Hey, let me sit with you. And lean into your story. It was words such as, why are you still crying? It's been a whole three months now, Jennifer. You know, it's, you know, people don't call you anymore because I wasn't the same person. And my grades are falling. And I'm not going to graduate with honors. And the boyfriend is like, yeah, you're too much for me. Too much for me. And so... It was messy and awful and complicated and nonlinear and just a nightmare. A cluster. It was a cluster.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing with grief in general. It doesn't fit a mold. It doesn't look a certain way. And one of the things I talk about, I'm calling it grief because of what you're describing. There's so much loss um, in what you're describing personally and in relationships and grief looks different on each person. Um, and patience is the one thing I always say, like we are, we need to be so much more patient with ourselves during any grieving process because you can't anticipate what shape it's going to take. And you just kind of have to figure it out. But you're too much. That's too much crying is probably not that unusual a response from someone who's not in the middle of it. They don't know what to do and you know, off they go.
1: It's true. And I'm so glad you brought up the word grief because it's one of the things I talk about a lot, right? We can't grieve anything we haven't loved before. Mm -hmm. And we seem to think that grief is just like the loss of a human being. We grieve the loss of our mother or the loss of our spouse, but we grieve anything that we've loved, which means the parts of our lives or the opportunities that now are not going to happen, the relationships that had to, to end, we grieve those things. And yet because of our Western culture, Mm -hmm. we haven't carved out spaces for that deep grief Mm -hmm. that the losses and the longings and that Mm -hmm. sitting with it, because it is icky. Yeah. Yeah. And it Ooh, is uncomfortable. Mess. It's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't want to sit in that with you.
0: Mm-hmm. Because it's messy and they don't want it to slop up on them. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. And so the, okay. So the trial is roughly a year later and, um, and he's convicted and life gets real messy um what what was the period of time between um that and uh the first sort of inklings maybe that there were issues um was dna the next thing that happened or or i don't know if ronald had appeal had appeals going
1: yeah i mean the the, the... And what are the, one of the things that's, that's hard with this process is on the victim side, whether you're the victim of the violence or your family members are the victim of the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the system has a very poor way of telling you the what next. Mm-hmm. You just assume the trial's over and like, boom, that's done. And, and this person's going to spend 50 years or 100 years or whatever in prison. What they don't tell you is, they're always going to have an appeal. As a matter of fact, they'll start their appeal process like a minute and a half after the sentencing takes place. But you don't know that. Sure. I had no idea um, what post-conviction is what they call it. You know, it's pre-conviction, post-conviction, what that looks like. And so I graduated. Um, I had a new relationship. I moved to a new state. I got a job working in a bank, which if you know me and my capacity to keep like invoices and bills update, it's just not, you should not put me in a bank. It's not the best fit. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not my place. It's not my place. Um, but I start working in a bank. And then in 1997, um, 1987, I'm sorry, the appellate court came back and said, oh, by the way, He's appealed. Um, There's this problem with the first trial in the sense the second victim never testified and the jury never heard that she couldn't make an identification. So we've got to retry this whole thing, but both of your cases together at the same time. And the inkling was, which I didn't believe. So this is an inkling of other people, but not my inkling, was that Ronald had come up with a person in the same prison system like literally in the same cell block that he believed had committed these crimes. So in the second trial, 1987, they bring this kind of mystery person into the court and, you know, ask him up on the stand, did he commit these crimes? And of course, you know, he's going to deny it. And when they asked me and the other survivor, did we recognize this mystery person, our response was true for us, which was, no, we don't recognize him at all. And so he's removed, and the jury never knows about the mystery person, and Ronald is retried and resentenced, but this time to two life sentences and 30 years. And again, every time these things kind of pop up in victims' lives, it is another reshattering, you know, another trauma, another disillusion is it. another tornado and maybe the teacup that you found from the first wreckage is now shattered and you don't even have your teacup to look at so it's just less and less pieces and um and again the language is okay this really is over now really like really 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 over you know?
0: They meant it the first time, but now they yeah. really mean it this yeah. time.
1: But this time we really mean it. Yeah. Yeah. And so again, you kind of like plod on with your life. And for me, that looked like getting married, getting pregnant. And then in the spring of 1990, I gave birth to triplets. Um <sighs> I know, which is just a whole nother layer, <laughs> but <laughs> it's going to have to be another episode. <laughs> it's a whole nother episode. Like how, how do you, yeah. Uh, ordinary warriors raising multiples at the same time. Um, it was chaos. But uh-huh. for me, that looked like a reason to not die. Yeah. For me, it looked like, okay, I got to stay together. Like I got to get my stuff together because I've got these three little babies.
0: And so when you say a reason not to die, were you, did you contemplate ending your life?
1: Oh, I contemplated either ending my life or just, just vanishing. Yeah. Like trying to make myself so small in the universe that like it was microscopic and you couldn't find me. And I think that's probably pretty common for victims of sexual violence. It's, it's so diminishing. Like your power, your agency, your control is all stripped away from you at that moment. And you just try to become as tiny as you can in the universe. And hopefully nobody will do that to you again.
0: Yeah, I know that feeling um, of not wanting to stop living, but not wanting just what you just described, just become invisible or so small that nobody will see you exactly that's a dark place
1: it's a terrible place um yeah yeah and when the children came along it 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 became my task my job my mission my you know purpose was to be their mom and i loved being their mom it was like the best thing i ever did um despite the eight thousand diapers and the (laughs) you know (laughs) Everybody getting chicken pox and everybody throwing up in February at 2 a.m. in their cribs at the same same time. time. All at the same time. Yeah. Um, Despite all that, I really, really loved it. And it gave me such purpose in my life Mm -hmm. until the spring of 1995, which then was my first inkling as to wait. What's happening and what's going on? And again no one's talking to me about it on the criminal justice system side, right? There's things happening without my knowledge mm-hmm. until March of 1995, when the detective from the, um, the case and the assistant district attorney of Alamance County came to my house and said, look, you know, there's this thing called DNA and I knew of DNA because the OJ Simpson had just, you know, happened. So right. DNA was the big buzzword people were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and North Carolina didn't have any statutes that allowed for the testing, but if the courts did allow the the test to go forward, my blood sample from eleven years ago had disintegrated and I would have to give a new blood sample. And um, you know, my children are five and I'm not going back into the court and, and and to you know, I kind of said to them, like at some point this has to be over. Like at some point you guys can't keep coming into my life and shredding it over and over again. So I gave them the blood that day and I didn't really think about it. It was just just headed down I-40 to Raleigh, North Carolina. And, um they came back to my house in the first week of June of that summer and told me the results and that is that it was not Ronald Cotton who committed the crimes, but it was indeed the mystery person in 1987 that I had not recognized by the name of Bobby Poole, who was a serial rapist and had gone on to commit 24 other violent crimes between July of 84 and April of 1985 when he was then caught um, fleeing the home of his last victim. So, yeah, it was so much trauma at one point So much information, so much um, confusion um, and fear and anger and shame and guilt and just everything that you can possibly imagine coming at me from every point of the universe just collided in this one moment with the understanding that, my God, how
0: did this happen? What you just described, the shame and the, you know, all of this coming tumbling down on your head again the the and and not just a, I mean whatever not just but a trial and then another trial and all of these different things and then finding out that this was this had been the wrong person all along I can only imagine what that must have felt like for you and I'm curious during that time, could you, could you, did you have clear thoughts in your mind? Were you able, what was that processing like? Because that's now 10, 10, 10, 11, 11 years believing a particular thing and trying to climb out of that darkness and then this on top of it um with three little ones and a life that you were you know trying to move on to um what what was that part of the experience for you the part where you find out that everything that you thought to be true was not
1: there's so many things that went through my mind I mean I think one of the things that didn't go through my mind, maybe I should start there, was yeah. was disbelieving the scientific information. Mm-hmm. When they told me, I, I didn't look at them and say, this has got to be wrong. Like, you've got to be wrong. You've got to go back and retest it. Because I understood the scientific method and the evidence versus human fallible, frail memory. Like, I understood that, right? I wasn't going to put those mm-hmm. two on it for lack of better words, on trial at the yeah. same time. Like, I understood yeah. DNA. Okay, got it. Um, what I couldn't understand was how it happened. How that, how from the the moment of the sexual assault to the trial, like, how did that get so distorted and so confusing and so perverted? And I didn't understand that process. The overriding fear the overriding feeling for me, I guess, really was fear. It was fear. It was abject fear. Um, because I, as you said, I've got these three little children and this is the first week of June and Ronald's coming out on June 30th. Like, they told me that. And I, so I have this huge window of how do I protect my children? How do I create a, a safety mechanism? Like what things do I put in place to keep my kids safe? And so I went into hyper mode, like really hyper mode. Um the other thing that that collapsed me that truly paralyzed me was the guilt of being part of the process. And I want to explain that more later on because one of the things I work really hard on is debunking shame as this as, as it relates to not just sexual violence, but Victims of post conviction processes. Um, Because I think what happened for me was everybody was perfectly happy for me to kind of wear the mantle of this is all my fault. Yeah. I mean, the world, yeah. And the system was like, yeah, you care. You wear that t shirt. You go, girl. Yeah. Um, Nobody else was standing there saying, okay, let me explain how memory works, Jennifer. Let me explain how trauma works, Jennifer. Let me tell you what those steps and that identification procedure, how it distorted your memory. I wouldn't learn that for another six years. So I really wouldn't understand that part for another six years, but fear and guilt were probably the two things that were vying for first place. in in my emotional, um, marathon, um, And it was terrible because as isolating as sexual assault is, or as we make it, by the way, it's actually not that we make it that way. Um, But being a a rape survivor from now a wrongful conviction case, this is 1995, Ronald would be the first DNA exoneration in the state of North Carolina. It'd be like number 23 in the country. This was not a thing. But it was also the first time that a DNA test had not just exonerated an innocent person, but found the guilty perpetrator. So it was a big deal Mm -hmm. in the media. And the media was clamoring to find Jennifer Thompson, the girl. And again, I really tried to make myself very tiny once more, Um, just, just kind of remove myself from the universe, which is hard to do when you have three little people that Need breakfast. Yeah, well, and
0: that's what girls and women do on a on a regular basis, right? It's the world that is the world that we live in. It's not the world that we want. But then this is like to the nth degree. Because now people are coming for you. It's not just us feeling like we need to make ourselves smaller, but now you have to make yourself smaller for survival purposes as opposed to just sort of maintain yourself in the world. Um, and so, in in those days, what, what was your, what was your fear was, what was, your, was your fear something in addition to being sort of found by the media, you know, by the people who are like trying, now they're trying to tell the story the way they want to tell it. Um, what, what was happening during that time up until Ronald was his release date?
1: Um, I think what was happening during that time was afraid of retaliation, mm-hmm. either from him or his family, right? Because yeah. I think so often we kind of measure how another person's feeling based on how we would feel.
0: Absolutely.
1: So I'm putting myself in that place, right? I'm like 11 years, I'm in prison for something I didn't do. I'm going yeah. to hate you. I'm going to hate you. I'm mm-hmm. going to from that place. My perspective was, you know, he hates me. His family's going to kill me. The media's going to find me. My life is over. I'm going to have to change my name, dye my hair red, and move to the other end of the world. Yeah, like, that's the only answer to this. That's the yeah. only way I'm going to survive this.
0: And how soon after Ronald was released, who who took the first step toward the
1: other? I did. Part of it was I was dying. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I was dissolving. I was disintegrating. I was paralyzed. I was non-functioning. I literally was non-functioning. I I mean, I could do the kind of rote stuff that we as moms do, right? You know how to open up the the cocoa puffs you know how to put the the clothes from the washer to the dryer that's the stuff we know we can do it in our sleep yeah because it was the fight. it was that mental stuff it was like Mm -hmm. oh wait i gotta sign papers for tomorrow why where are those papers and there's a bill that's due and wait where's the bill it's that Mm -hmm. stuff that i was really struggling with yeah but the other part of it was ronald walked out on june 30th 1995 and in the Fall of 1997, I had been asked to participate in a um, documentary titled What Jennifer Saw, and it was all about the fallibility of eyewitness ID and our memory and trauma and all those things. And of course, my immediate response to the request was, You got to be kidding me. Like, mm-hmm. seriously? Like, no. And how did you find me anyway? How did you find me? But then I had to reconcile the fact that they were going to tell my story anyway, and you know, it's only my story to tell. It's only my story to tell. No one's lived it. So you can't tell it. So I I agreed to do it, but Ronald had to stay far, far away from me because I knew he was going to kill me. And so that's just the way it had to be done. And they did that. And it aired in February of 97. And that the last thing I say in that documentary is I know that Ronald's an innocent man, but I still see him in my nightmares. And that was that moment for me of like, but Why? Why is he still there? Because I know it's not him. And why can't I see Bobby Bull? Because I know it is him. And that sent me in this journey of really, really trying to kind of unpeel and unpack everything that had happened to me. And I knew that the beginning of that had to be, I had to go meet this man. Words, there were words that needed to be said, and there were words that needed to be spoken to each other. Words that I needed to say, words he needed to hear. So in April of 1997, um, about a mile and a half from where the rape had taken place, we met for the first time. And um, I had not planned any of this, by the way. I mean, I I planned the meeting, but I didn't plan the what next, because yeah. I don't even know that you can. And when he walked into the room, I just started to cry, and I told him how so sorry. I mean, so deeply sorry I am for what happened to him. And he began to cry. And we both just kind of held each other's hands and said, you know what? We were both hurt and let down and betrayed by the same things, right? Bobby Poole first. Bobby Poole had raped me and this other woman, had attempted to rape a woman before me, had gone on to rape six more women that fall one of the women he went back and raped her a second time. Like this is a man who was intentionally with malice, creating unfathomable amounts of damage and harm. But he also knew an innocent man had gone to prison for the crimes he committed. Right. So there's this intentional behavior and act on this man's Mm -hmm. part. And Ronald and I were victims of that, but we were also victims of a system that, that says We are here to provide justice for crime victims and survivors. We are here to make sure innocent people don't go to prison and the right person does. And that was a failure. And it was in that space that we realized that we were both victims and we were both survivors of the same systems. And it was in that space that we began to heal ourselves and each other and become friends.
0: Whose idea was the book? Did you come to that together? Were you approached, if you remember? We were
1: always approached. Yeah. The years went on. Ronald and I became this very strange celebrity, weird couple of people. <laughs> it's just very, very weird. Um, and so people were always trying to buy our life rights, particular for film. And um, Ronald, you know, bless him, he we would talk about it with each other. And, and I would just kind of say to him, you know, Ron, I just don't think of films what we want to do. They're going to distort it. It's going to be some weird lifetime movie. Yeah. It's not going to be authentic. I think we want to wait and someday maybe we'll write a book. Wouldn't that be fun? And then people would come up and say, oh, I think I want to write your book. And they would have these really weird, icky Ideas like one woman yeah. was like, I don't think I can sell this story, and, and I said, Really, tell me why. And she said, Well, it's not very sexy, it'd been different if you and Ronald had gotten married. And I thought, Yeah, you don't get to be a part of this story at all. Ew, what Ew, in the exactly world? exactly? And then a man was like, Oh, I've got the title for your book, I, I know the title for your book, and I was like, Really, what is it? And he said, The Rape of Jennifer Thompson, and I'm like, No, oh my god, that's no. Oh. It's it was all very 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 icky, um, yeah. but I had the title in my head for a long time. I had the structure of first person split narrative. Like I, I knew like how it needed to be done, mm-hmm. because it couldn't be my story. It couldn't be Ron's story. It had to be our story and our voices, and then collides into our voices. Right. Yeah. It's just yeah. the way it had to be done. And yeah. so fortunately, he trusted me on that, and um. I'm a firm believer that the universe shows up and provides us what we need when we're ready and yeah. often not what we want because what we want probably isn't very good for us anyway. Oh, so I just kind of <laughs> stayed really patient to the process and it was very organic in nature.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Which is how um, I've lived in my life.
0: I, I I, need to ask before I forget in the cover picking cotton the eye is orange and my son, who's thirteen, wanted to know why is the eye orange.
1: Yes, um, it's orange, and the reason why the eye, so there's it's very clever by the way. The <laughs> eye is the second eye, so it's in picking, but it's mm-hmm. the fifth letter. Mm-hmm. Ronald was number five in the physical lineup.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Okay. And the orange denotes the colored jumpsuit he had to wear in prison. Yes. And also, it's about eyewitness identification and the frailties and the fallibilities involved in that. So yeah. it's kind of got lots of different yeah. symbolisms in it. So yeah, that was very clever. So it is very clever. Isaiah, I, good question.
0: Yeah, good question. He spots things that I don't always spot. So I'm I'm glad that he pointed it out because I got to ask you about it. Yeah. Um. So one of the things that has really fascinated me, and I've really appreciated when we talk and when I hear you talk is about how important it is to recognize all of the collateral damage in these types of situations. And um, I would love to hear you talk about how you decided to focus your attention on the survivors um, who are not just, not in addition to the crime victims, uh, crime survivors, but also the exonerated and the families of the, it's not just families of exonerated, is it? Is it families also of wrongly convicted? Yeah. You you yep. tell me what who, and yeah. we're talking about healing justice. I we, yeah we need to talk about that.
1: Um. Well, I mean, part of the journey for me was. Because I was out there. I mean, we've been in People Magazine, Good Morning America, Today Show, been on Oprah twice, I've been Mm -hmm. on The View. I mean, I've been on a lot of different platforms. And Mm -hmm. and so obviously my face became quite high profile. Mm -hmm. And what was happening is that exonerated individuals or families that had an innocent person still locked in prison or crime victims and survivors from these cases were reaching out to me and saying, hey, can you? can I talk to you? I am struggling. I'm in pain. I I'm, I'm on the verge of suicide, yeah, please. And I would find, you know, I'd reach out to people and I would try to hold space for them. What I continued to struggle with was that, that when these individuals are released from prison, that's kind of it. That's kind of it. Right. I mean, this over. Aren't you happy now? You've got your freedom. Now rock on with your happy life. Closure. Oh, Closure. And for the victims and survivors from these cases, more often than not, their cases become cold cases. And so they're left with, okay, well, if this person didn't kill my child, if this person didn't murder my husband, if this ter- person didn't shoot my, my brother, then who did? And so there's this, What I call the aftermath space of these wrongful convictions. And there was nothing for anybody anywhere. And so everybody was kind of left trying to figure out the what next of just another step in this nightmarish, hellish landscape. And I started thinking to myself, what would happen if there was an organization? that was conceived by, led by, educated by the experts, which are those of us that have lived it. There are no more experts that are better at this stuff than the people who have survived. But also, can we bring this restorative justice perspective into a national wrongful conviction landscape. Like what would it look like if I brought exonerated individuals and their families and crime victims and survivors and their families together in this really safe space to begin to explore what happened to us? And was there a potential for us to be able to heal ourselves and heal each other in this community that in this community, if we could build that connection of, Oh, you were harmed too. Oh my gosh. I never even thought about that the victim from my case experienced these feelings as well. Can we build those connections with each other in that community, in a safe community, and begin to lean into our stories, be truth-tellers of our own journeys, um, and create a sense of belonging so we can heal together. So I launched Healing Justice in 2015. Um, when Ronald and I both received the special courage award from the department of justice. And so I launched healing justice in 2015 as a way to kind of create this aftercare aftermath space for those of us who have lived it and experienced and survived it. Um, And so what we talk about at healing justice, which I think was one of your questions is this idea of concentric circles. You've got this, this person in the center of this, Circle that creates all this harm, right? The perpetrator, the person who starts this whole thing. Yeah. If it wasn't for this, you wouldn't have all these other victims on the outside of our circle. But in that outside of the circle, you've got the original victims, as we refer to them. You've got their families. You have the wrongfully convicted men and women. You have their families. But we also have other people that we're not really understanding are harmed. I mean, think about a juror in these cases. Opens the newspaper 30 years later and realizes that they were part of a process where they received either wrong information or not full information. And they rendered a decision and a verdict and it, and it caught, you know, it calls this over here. It's not their fault. Yeah. It's not their fault. Yeah. But they're part of the harm. They get harmed. And I also believe that justice system practitioners get harmed. I believe that district attorneys get harmed, police get harmed, judges get harmed, public defenders get harmed. And then the community, the community is incredibly harmed when the perpetrator is still out there hurting other people. Yes. So part of our problem in in the dialogue of wrongful convictions is we kind of have this silo of a narrative, this singular narrative. John gets arrested, John's found guilty, John goes to prison, 33 years later, he's released from prison, and we're like, oh my God, that's the worst story ever. We're not hearing from John's children, who were two and four, and John's wife or John's mother. We're not listening to the victims whose brother was shot to death in a car in the middle of the night, and their family imploded, and drug and alcohol issues and suicide issues come off of that Like we have these myriad of ways that people are harmed we're not hearing that and because we're not hearing it we seem to think that these wrongful conviction cases are just kind of like a few thousand you know th- 3,300 people it's sad but but we've got other bigger you know problems in the world but the reality is for every wrongful conviction case I believe I really do believe there are hundreds of people that are harmed in every single case. And so I want to explore the total harm, the, the, the total um, damages that are being created. And I want to create a way to um, bring equity into those stories so that you, you understand. In this s- single story right here, Here's everybody that's hurt, and more often than not, and I and I'm serious when I say this. More often than not, the crime victims and survivors' stories are erased out of the wrongful conviction stories. You don't yeah. even know what happened to them. You don't yeah. even know their names.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's right.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: started out talking about forgiveness, and a lot of times I think forgiveness sounds like what what you. It's in relation to someone else Um, in this situation. Well, let me first ask you this. It, It might feel like a left turn or a right turn, but I, I wonder sometimes if forgiveness need, you know, the, the term forgiveness needs like a new marketing manager, because I think that there's so much about forgiveness that people think that they are giving something to someone else. Um, And that they have to give up something of themselves to do that. And there's also a belief that forgiveness is really letting something go so that you're not, so it's not destroying you from the inside. But I thought about this in this situation and I wondered what that was like for you in terms of forgiving yourself. I think that that has. Had to have been um, one of the hardest parts of this entire experience is showing yourself the grace um, in this situation to have been part of this greater situation that you did not ask for. Because it still began, like you said, it began with this one person in the middle. You were also the victim right in the middle. How have you been able to be patient with yourself and be gentle with yourself?
1: Um, well, that was a very, very long process. Um, and, I, you know, I continue to work on it because I think we're always put in situations where we're asking ourselves to... Um, to give ourselves space and grace and compassion mm-hmm. and love. Like we would give anybody else that we love. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but within this experience, I think one of the things that happened for me, and again, this was a quite long and windy path is I had to understand, which again was about six years to understand what had happened to my memory. So between 95 and 2001, I was able to learn about, Memory and about eyewitness identification and the collecting of trauma victims' memories and how hard that is. All the things that took place in that that distorted my memory, um, that changed my memory, that gave me um, confidence in something that wasn't accurate. So this is you know a lot of things that we that I've worked on within the system of trying to help change that. But I think. Forgiving myself happened because I was watching other victims and survivors struggling with the same issues. And I was looking at them saying, well, okay, well, hold on a second. This can't be your fault. Like, this cannot be your fault. And they would say, well, you know, I still looked at the photographic lineup, and I still chose number two. And it wasn't number two. And I am saying, okay, but did you put together the lineup? And the answer was like, "Well, no. Did you come up with a suspect?" Well, "No, I didn't." "Did you did you did you take this to trial? Did you were you responsible for the 12 jurors?" I mean, at any part of that was were you responsible for any of that? And the answer is of course no. Said so this can't be your fault unless remember that this could never have happened if the perpetrator hadn't tried to kill you.
0: That's right.
1: And so helping Survivors and victims unpack it for themselves really helped me to unpack it for myself. Understanding, like Jennifer, you did nothing wrong, you were asked to participate in a criminal justice procedure that was flawed at the beginning, and you didn't know it. The train left the station, you weren't driving the train, you weren't now. Do I still feel like there's a place in there for sincere apology? Of course, because I'm a human being and I cared, cared deeply about Ronald Cotton. I am terribly sorry for what happened to you. I'm also terribly sorry for what happened to me. And I'm also really terribly sorry for what happened to, you know, to Linda. And I'm really terribly sorry for what happened to the Schoen family. Like, I'm terribly sorry for what happened to all of us. It's the system's responsibility to get it right. Um, But I do agree with you that I do think forgiveness needs a new marketing manager because I think what we're, what we're asking people to do, if we're honest with each other is to, it's more in line of Desmond Tutu's approach, which is truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like what is, what is the truth? And how do we reconcile that? And within mm-hmm. that truth and reconciliation, that's where I believe grace comes in, and that's where I believe um, taking back our voice comes in, and that's when um, showing ourselves compassion and love and and forgiveness and you know all the things that that we would give someone that we love. Yeah, right. Yeah. Using the same words we would give to our children. We need to be given to ourselves. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. I um, and I do think it takes us back to you're talking about truth and reconciliation, uh, where we started, which is we live in a world where girls and women aren't necessarily safe, even in their own skin. And oh. that is something. I have a dog and he's telling me we've been talking a while. Everybody knows I have a dog. Um, just that, uh, Oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, about being, being honest about the world that we live in and making sure that it is everyone's responsibility to work toward a better, safer place for everyone. Um, And, you know, that that would be an important first start, first step. Yeah. And I I also wanted to say um, that, you know, you have created a place for people who otherwise would be experiencing incredible isolation and have nowhere to go in these situations because they get dropped off, you know, at the door when it's all over. Um, and I think that, um, I just think that's a, a beautiful, a beautiful place that you've created.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I, um, I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of the people we serve. I'm proud of the work that we do every day to try to make the system fairer and better and kinder and, um, more just for all of us, because I think that's, that's what the system is supposed to look like um but i also want to and we talked about this at the very beginning i do want to kind of demystify this whole thing about shame and why why women feel like we've got to carry it like i mean that's some messed up stuff yeah yeah it is that's really messed up saying that we've got to carry the shame of something that someone did to our bodies and i can't out you mm -hmm. and i'm all about outing you and i'm going to out you yeah I'm. I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'm not carrying this. You did this to me, and you own it. So, yeah. I'm gonna name you. I'm gonna speak the truth. Yeah. I'm gonna give people permission to speak the truth. I want people to feel safe to tell their stories, yeah. um, in their authentic, vulnerable ways. Yeah. And I think. When we create spaces that allow for that, Mm -hmm. then we see, I think then we see the the kind of ripple effects that we need to create in the universe so that the people that are creating harm get held accountable and the rest of us, you know, the rest of us get to, to, to heal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Jennifer, thank you so much. I have Welcome. really enjoyed this conversation. I think that it's not the only one because there's plenty more that we could talk about. Oh yeah, and I hope you'll come back and and we could chat some more.
1: Yeah, uh- <laughs> thanks, Alona. Thanks for having me. And yeah, let me know.
0: Okay, thanks, let Jennifer. Let the dog
1: out. <laughs> I, I'm gonna
0: have to let the dog out. He's clearly telling me our time is up.
1: <laughs> All right. Be All well. Right.
0: Thanks to you too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Jennifer Thompson is the founder of Healing Justice and became a pioneer of restorative justice through the friendship she built with Ronald Cotton, the innocent man wrongly convicted in her case. They later co authored the best selling book, Picking Cotton, our memoir of injustice and redemption. To learn more, visit healingjusticeproject.org. for listening to the Ordinary Warrior podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today and that it gives you encouragement and maybe just a little bit of company on your journey. Remember, you're not alone in your battles and there's strength in numbers. I'll be back in two weeks with a new inspiring story. In the meantime, take action and take care until we meet again in the break room where ordinary warriors find their tribe.